Welcome to Volume 3 of The Shadow Out of Time. Chapter 4 I continued, however, to keep a careful record of the outré dreams which crowded upon me so thickly and vividly. Such a record, I argued, was of genuine value as a psychological document. The glimpses still seemed damnably like memories, though I fought off this impression with a goodly measure of success. In writing, I treated the phantasmata as things seen, but at all other times I brushed them aside like any gossamer illusions of the night. I had never mentioned such matters in common conversation, though reports of them filtering out as such things will had aroused sundry rumors regarding my mental health. It is amusing to reflect that these rumors were confined wholly to laymen, without a single champion among physicians or psychologists. Of my visions after 1914, I will here mention only a few, since fuller accounts and records are at the disposal of the serious student. It is evident that with time the curious inhibitions somewhat waned, for the scope of my visions vastly increased. They have never, though, become other than disjointed fragments, seemingly without clear motivation. Within the dreams I seem gradually to acquire a greater and greater freedom of wandering. I floated through many strange buildings of stone, going from one to the other along mammoth underground passages which seemed to form the common avenues of transit. Sometimes I encountered those gigantic seal-trap doors in the lowest levels, around which such an aura of fear and forbiddenness clung. I saw tremendously tessellated pools and rooms of curious and inexplicable utensils of myriad sorts. Then there were colossal caverns of intricate machinery whose outlines and purpose were wholly strange to me and whose sound manifested itself only after many years of dreaming. I may here remark that sight and sound are the only senses I have ever exercised in the visionary world. The real horror began in May 1915 when I first saw the living things. This was before my studies had taught me what, in view of the myths and case histories, to expect. As mental barriers wore down, I beheld great masses of thin vapor in various parts of the building in the streets below. These steadily grew more solid and distinct, till at last I could trace their monstrous outlines with uncomfortable ease. They seemed to be enormous iridescent cones about ten feet high and ten feet wide at the base and made up of some ridgy scaly semi-elastic matter from their apices projected four flexible cylindrical members each a foot thick and of a ridgy substance like that of the cones themselves these members were sometimes contracted almost to nothing and sometimes extended to any distance up to about ten feet. Terminating two of them were enormous claws or nippers. At the end of a third, 
were four red trumpet-like appendages. The fourth terminated in an irregular yellowish globe some two feet in diameter and having three great dark eyes ranged along its central circumference. Surmounting this head were four slender gray stalks bearing flower-like appendages, whilst from its nether side dangled eight greenish antennae, or tentacles. The great base of the central cone was fringed with a rubbery gray substance which moved the whole entity through expansion and contraction. Their actions, though harmless, horrified me even more than their appearance, for it is not wholesome to watch monstrous objects doing what one had known only human beings to do. These objects moved intelligently about the great rooms, getting books from the shelves and taking them to the great tables or vice versa, and sometimes writing diligently with a peculiar rod gripped in the greenish head tentacles. The huge nippers were used in carrying books and in conversation speech consisting of a kind of clicking and scraping. The objects had no clothing but wore satchels or knapsacks suspended from the top of their conical trunks. They commonly carried their head and its supporting member at the level of the cone top, although it was frequently raised or lowered. The other three great members tended to rest downward at the sides of the cone, contracted to about five feet each when not in use. From their rate of reading, writing, and operating their machines, those on the table seemed somehow connected with thought. I concluded their intelligence was enormously greater than man's. Afterward, I saw them everywhere swarming in all the great chambers and corridors, tending monstrous machines and vaulted crypts, and racing along the vast roads in gigantic boat-shaped cars. I ceased to be afraid of them, for they seemed to form supremely natural parts of their environment. Individual differences among them began to manifest, and a few appeared to be under some kind of restraint. These latter, though showing no physical variation, had a diversity of gestures and habits that marked them off not only from the majority, but very largely from one another. They wrote a great deal in what seemed to be my cloudy vision, a vast variety of characters, never the typical curvilinear hieroglyphs of the majority. A few, I fancied, used our own familiar alphabet. Most of them worked much more slowly than the general mass of the entities. All this time, my own part in the dreams seemed to be that of a disembodied consciousness with a range of vision wider than normal, floating freely about yet confined to the ordinary avenues and speeds of travel. Not until August 1915 did any suggestions of bodily existence begin to harass me. I say harass because the first phase was a purely abstract, though infinitely terrible, association of my previously noted 
body loathing with the scenes of my visions. For a while my chief concern during dreams was to avoid looking down at myself, and I recall how grateful I was for the total absence of large mirrors in the strange rooms. I was mightily troubled by the fact that I always saw the great tables, whose height could not be under ten feet, from a level not below that of their surfaces. And then the morbid temptation to look down at myself became greater and greater, till one night I could not resist. At first, my downward glance revealed nothing whatsoever. A moment later, I perceived that this was because my head lay at the end of a flexible neck of enormous length. Retracting this neck and gazing down very sharply, I saw the scaly, rugose, iridescent bulk of a vast cone ten feet tall and ten feet wide at the base. That was when I woke up half of Arkham with my screaming as I plunged madly up from the abyss of sleep. Only after weeks of hideous repetition did I grow half reconciled to these visions of myself in this monstrous form. In the dreams, I now moved bodily among the other unknown entities, reading terrible books from the endless shelves and writing for hours at the great tables with a stylus managed by the green tentacles that hung down from my head. Snatches of what I read and wrote would linger in my memory. There were horrible annals of other worlds and other universes, and of stirrings of formless life outside of all universes. There were records of strange orders of beings which had peopled the world in forgotten pasts, and frightful chronicles of grotesque-bodied intelligences which would people it millions of years after the death of the last human being. I learned of chapters in human history whose existence no scholar of today has ever suspected. Most of these writings were in the language of the hieroglyphs, which I studied in a queer way with the aid of droning machines, and which was evidently an agglutinative language with root systems utterly unlike any found in human languages. Other volumes were in other unknown tongues, learned in the same queer way. A very few were in languages I knew. Extremely clever pictures, both inserted in the records and forming separate collections, aided me immensely and all the time I seemed to be setting down a history of my own age in English. On waking, I could recall only minutes and meaningless scraps of the unknown tongues which my dream self had mastered, though whole phrases of the history stayed with me. I learned, even before my waking self had studied the parallel cases or the old myths from which the dreams doubtless sprang, that the entities around me were the world's greatest race, which had conquered time and had sent exploring minds into every age. I knew, too, that I had been snatched from my age while another used my body in that age, and that a few of the other strange forms 
how similarly captured minds. I seem to talk in some odd language of claw clickings with exiled intellects from every corner of the solar system. There was a mind from the planet we know as Venus, which would live incalculable epochs to come, and one from an outer moon of Jupiter six billion years in the past. Of earthly minds there were some from the winged, star-headed, half-vegetable race of Paleogeon Antarctica, one from the reptile people of fabled Volusia, three from the furry, pre-human, hyperborean warshippers of Suthagua, one from the holy, abominable Chochos, two from the arachnid denizens of Earth's last age, five from the hardy, coleopterous species immediately following mankind, to which the great race was some day to transfer its keenest minds and mass in the face of horrible peril, and several from different branches of humanity. I talked with the mind of Yang Li, a philosopher from the cruel empire of the San Chan, which is to come in 5000 AD, with that of a general of the great-headed brown people who held South Africa in 50,000 BC, with that of a 12th century Florentine monk named Bartolomeo Corsi, with that of a king of Lomar who had ruled that terrible polar land 100,000 years before the squat yellow Inuit came from the west to engulf it. I talked with the mind of Nug Soth, a magician of the dark conquerors of 16,000 AD, with that of a Roman named Titus Sopronius Blasus, who had been a quester in Sulla's time, with that of Cephenus, an Egyptian of the 14th dynasty, who told me the hideous secret of Nyar Lothotep, with that of a priest of Atlantis's middle kingdom, with that of a Suffolk gentleman of Cromwell's day, James Woodville, with that of a court astronomer of pre-Inca Peru, with that of an Australian physicist, Neville Kingston Brown, who will die in 2518 AD, with that of an archmage of vanished Yi in the Pacific, with that of Theodotides, a Greco-Bactrian official of 200 BC, with that of an aged Frenchman of Louis XIII's time named Pierre-Louis Montagny, with that of Cromyah, a Sumerian chieftain of 15,000 BC, and so many others that my brain cannot hold the shocking secrets and dizzying marvels I learned from them. I awoke each morning in a fever, sometimes frantically trying to verify or discredit such information as fell within the range of modern human knowledge. Traditional facts took on new and doubtful aspects, and I marveled at the dream fancy which could invent such surprising addenda to history and science. I shivered at the mysteries the past may conceal, and trembled at the menaces the future may bring forth. What was hinted in the speech of postmodern entities of the fate of mankind 
produce such an effect on me that I will not set it down here. After man there would be the mighty beetle civilization, the bodies of whose members the cream of the great race would seize when the monstrous doom overtook the elder world. Later, as the Earth's span closed, the transferred minds would again migrate through time and space to another stopping place in the bodies of the bulbous vegetable entities of Mercury. But there would be races after them, clinging pathetically to the cold planet and burrowing to its horror-filled core before the utter end. Meanwhile, in my dreams, I wrote endlessly in that history of my own age, which I was preparing half voluntarily and half through promises of increased library and travel opportunities for the great race's central archives. The archives were in a colossal subterranean structure near the city's center, which I came to know well through frequent labors and consultations meant to last as long as the race and to withstand the fiercest of earth's convulsions this titan repository surpassed all other buildings in the massive mountain-like firmness of its construction the records written or printed on great sheets of a curiously tenacious cellulose fabric were bound into books that opened from the top and were kept in individual cases of a strange, extremely light, rustless metal of grayish hue, and decorated with mathematical designs and bearing the title of the great race's curvilinear hieroglyphs. These cases were stored in tiers of rectangular vaults, like closed-lock shelves, wrought of the same rustless metal and fastened by knobs with intricate turnings. My own history was assigned a specific place in the vaults of the lowest or vertebrate level, the section devoted to the culture of mankind and of the furry and reptilian races immediately preceding it in terrestrial dominance. But none of the dreams ever gave me a full picture of daily life, all with the merest misty disconnected fragments, and it is certain that these fragments were not unfolded in their rightful sequence. I have, for example, a very imperfect idea of my own living arrangements in the dream world, though I seem to have possessed a great stone room of my own. My restrictions as a prisoner gradually disappeared, so that some of the visions included vivid travels over the mighty jungle roads, sojourns in strange cities, and explorations of some of the vast, dark, windowless ruins from which the great race shrank in curious fear. There were also long sea voyages in enormous many-decked boats of incredible swiftness, and trips over wild regions in closed projectile-like airships, lifted and moved by electrical repulsion. Beyond the wide, warm ocean were other cities of the great race, and on one far continent I saw the crude villages of the black-snouted winged creatures who would evolve as the dominant stock after the great race had sent its foremost mind into the future to escape the creeping horror. Flatness and exuberant green life were always the keynote of the scene, 
Hills were low and sparse and usually displayed signs of volcanic forces. Of the animals I saw, I could write volumes. All were wild, for the great race's mechanized culture had long since done away with domestic beasts, while food was wholly vegetable or synthetic. Clumsy reptiles of great bulk floundered in steaming morasses, fluttered in the heavy air, or spouted in the seas and lakes, and among these I fancied I could vaguely recognize lesser archaic prototypes of many forms, dinosaurs, pterodactyls, ichthyosaurs, labyrinthodonts, plesiosaurs, and the like made familiar through paleontology. Of birds or mammals, there were none that I could discover. The ground and swamps were constantly alive with snakes and lizards and crocodiles, while insects buzzed incessantly among the lush vegetation. And far out to sea, unspied and unknown monsters spouted mountainous columns of foam into the vaporous sky. Once I was taken under the ocean in a gigantic submarine vessel with searchlights and glimpsed some living horrors of awesome magnitude. I saw also ruins of incredible sunken cities and the wealth of crinoid, brachiopod, coral, and ichthic life which everywhere abounded. Of the physiology, psychology, folkways, and detailed history of the great race, my visions preserve but little information, and many of the scattered points I here set down were gleaned from my study of old legends and other cases rather than from my own dreaming. For in time, of course, my reading and research caught up with and passed the dreams in many phases, so that certain dream fragments were explained in advance and form verification of what I had learned. This consolingly established my belief that similar reading and research accomplished by my secondary self had formed the source of the whole terrible fabric of pseudo-memories. The period of my dreams apparently was one somewhat less than 150 million years ago, when the Paleozoic Age was giving place to the Mesozoic. The bodies occupied by the great race represented no surviving or even scientifically known line of terrestrial evolution, but were of a peculiar, closely homogeneous and highly specialized organic type inclining as much as to the vegetable as to the animal state. Cell action was of a unique sort, almost precluding fatigue and wholly eliminating the need for sleep. Nourishment assimilated through the red trumpet-like appendages on one of the great flexible limbs was always semi-fluid and in many aspects wholly unlike the food of existing animals. The beings had but two of the senses which we recognize, sight and hearing, the latter accomplished through the flower-like appendages on the gray stalks above their heads. Of other and incomprehensible senses, they possessed many. Their three eyes were so situated as to give them a range of vision wider than normal. Their blood was of a sort of deep 
greenish ichor of great thickness. They had no sex, but reproduced through seeds or spores which clustered on their bases and could be developed only under water. Great shallow tanks were used for the growth of their young, which were, however, reared only in small number on account of the longevity of individuals, four or five thousand years being the common lifespan. Markedly defective individuals were quickly disposed of as soon as their defects were noticed. Disease and the approach of death were, in the absence of a sense of touch or physical pain, recognized by purely visual symptoms. The dead were incinerated with dignified ceremonies. Once in a while, as before mentioned, a keen mind would escape death by forward projection in time, but such cases were not numerous. When one did occur, the exiled mind from the future was treated with the utmost kindness till the dissolution of its unfamiliar tenement. The great race seemed to form a single, loosely knit nation or league without major institutions in common, though there were four definite divisions. The political and economic system of each unit was a sort of fascistic socialism with major resources rationally distributed and power delegated to a small governing board elected by the votes of all able to pass certain educational and psychological tests. Family organization was not overstressed, though ties among persons of common descent were recognized, and the young were generally reared by their parents. Resemblances to human attitudes and institutions were, of course, most marked in those fields where, on the one hand, highly abstract elements were concerned, or where, on the other hand, there was a dominance of the basic, unspecialized urges common to all organic life. A few added likenesses came through conscious adoption as the great race probed the future and copied what it liked. Industry, highly mechanized, demanded but little time from each citizen, and the abundant leisure was filled with intellectual and aesthetic activities of various sorts. The sciences were carried to an unbelievable height of development, and art was a vital part of life, though at the period of my dreams it had passed its crest and meridian. Technology was enormously stimulated through the constant struggle to survive and to keep in existence the physical fabric of great cities imposed by the prodigious geologic upheavals of those primal days. Crime was surprisingly scant and was dealt with through highly efficient policing. Punishments ranged from privilege, deprivation, and imprisonment to death and were never administered without a careful study of the criminal's motivations. Warfare, largely civil for the last few millennia, though sometimes waged against reptilian or octopodic invaders, or against the winged star-headed old ones who centered in the Antarctic, was infrequent, though infinitely devastating. An enormous army, using camera-like weapons, which produced tremendous electrical effects, was kept on hand for purposes seldom mentioned, but obviously connected with the ceaseless fear 
of the dark windowless elder ruins out of the great sealed trap doors in the lowest subterranean levels. This fear of the basalt ruins and trap doors was largely a matter of unspoken suggestion, or at most, of furtive quasi-whispers. Everything specific which bore on it was significantly absent from such books as were on the common shelves. It was the one subject lying altogether under a taboo among the great race, and seemed to be connected alike with horrible bygone struggles, and with that future peril which would someday force the race to send its keener minds ahead en masse in time. Imperfect and fragmentary as were the other things presented by dreams and legends, this matter was still more bafflingly shrouded. The vague old myths avoided it, or perhaps all illusions had for some reason been excised, and in the dreams of myself and others, the hints were peculiarly few. Members of the great race never intentionally referred to the matter, and what could be gleaned came only from some of the more sharply observant captive minds. According to these scraps of information, the basis of the fear was a horrible elder race of half-polyparous, utterly alien entities which had come through space from immeasurably distant universes and had dominated the Earth and three other solar planets about 600 million years before. They were only partly material, as we understand matter, and their type of consciousness and media of perception differed widely from those of terrestrial organisms. For example, their senses did not include that of sight, their mental world being a strange non-visual pattern of impressions. They were, however, sufficiently material to use implements of normal matter when in cosmic areas containing it, and they required housing, albeit of a peculiar kind. Though their senses could penetrate all material barriers, their substance could not, and certain forms of electrical energy could wholly destroy them. They had the power of aerial motion, despite the absence of wings or any other visible means of levitation. Their minds were of such texture that no exchange with them could be effected by the great race. When these things had come to the earth, they had built mighty basalt cities of windowless towers and had preyed horribly upon the beings they found. Thus it was when the minds of the great race sped across the void from that obscure transgalactic world in the disturbing and debatable Eltdown shards as Yith. The newcomers with their instruments they created had found it easy to subdue the predatory entities and drive them down to those caverns of inner earth which they had already joined to their abodes and begun to inhabit. Then they had sealed the entrances and left them to their fate, afterward occupying most of their great cities and preserving certain important buildings for reasons connected more with superstition than with indifference, boldness, or scientific and historical zeal. But as the eons passed, there came 
vague evil signs that the elder things were growing strong and numerous in the inner world. There were sporadic eruptions of a particularly hideous character in certain small and remote cities of the great race, and in some of the deserted elder cities which the great race had not peopled, places where the paths to the gulfs below had not been properly sealed and guarded. After that, greater precautions were taken, and many of the paths were closed forever, though a few were left with sealed trap doors for the strategic use in fighting the elder things if ever they broke forth in unexpected places. The eruptions of the elder things must have been shocking beyond all description, since they had permanently colored the psychology of the great race. Such was the fixed mood of horror that the very aspect of the creatures was left unmentioned. At no time was I able to gain a clear hint of what they looked like. There were veiled suggestions of a monstrous plasticity and of temporary lapses of visibility, while other fragmentary whispers referred to their control and military use of great winds, singular whistling noises, and colossal footprints made up of five circular toe marks seemed also to be associated with them. It was evident that the coming doom so desperately feared by the great race, the doom that was one day to send millions of keen minds across the chasm of time to strange bodies in the safer future, had to do with a final successful eruption of the elder beings. Mental projections down the ages had clearly foretold of such a horror and the great race had resolved that none who could escape should face it, that the foray would be a matter of vengeance rather than an attempt to reoccupy the outer world they knew from the planet's later history, for their projections showed the coming and going of subsequent races untroubled by the monstrous entities. Perhaps these entities had come to prefer Earth's inner abysses to the variable storm-ravaged surface since light meant nothing to them. Perhaps, too, they were slowly weakening with the eons. Indeed, it was known that they would be quite dead in the time of the post-human beetle race, which the fleeing minds would tenant. Meanwhile, the great race maintained its cautious vigilance, with potent weapons ceaselessly ready, despite the horrified banishing of the subject from common speech and visible records. And always the shadow of nameless fear hung about the sealed trap doors and the dark windowless elder towers. <laughs>